Hello, everyone. Welcome to Let Fear Bounce. This is your host, Kim Langling. Welcome to part one of my chat with Dr. Phil Rosencrantz, the author of Letters from Uncle Dave, a World War II veteran story. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Let Fear Bounce. This is Kim Langling, your host. I am so glad that you are deciding to spend just a little bit of your day with me and my special guest today. My guest today is Phil Rosencrantz. He is the author of Letters from Uncle Dave, the 73-year journey to find a missing and action World War II paratrooper. It was a 20-year quest with lots of twists and turns, and finally, Phil discovered the grief, ambiguous loss, and lack of closure that his family suffered after the war that he was oblivious to as a young boy. A few of Phil's passions are World War II history, backpacking, travel, outdoor cooking, bluegrass, and Disneyland. Phil and his wife, Judy, now divide their time between Southern California and Central Arizona. And to learn more about this amazing book that Phil has written, you can visit his website at philrosencrantz.com. Phil, thank you so much for joining me today. I have been really looking forward to this chat as a veteran myself and an a huge advocate for veterans for the last 24, 25 years. I was just enthralled with uh, the story of you writing a book about about your Uncle Dave. I am so glad to have you. Thank you. Thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for asking. So what my first question, 73 years in the making of this book, technically, because your uncle was missing in action, what made you, what gave you that push that all of a sudden you said, you know what, we got to find more, we have to find out more about Uncle Dave. We need to get his story out there. Well, that's a great first question. I grew up knowing I had an uncle who, you know, was in World War II and never came home. And my grandmother was convinced he was still alive. So nobody would talk about it. And she died in 1960. So all during the 50s, I was born in 49. I grew up, you know, with seeing the picture on the mantle, but nobody would talk about it. And then she died in 60 and nobody talked about it. Now to answer your question, in 1998, I saw the, save, the movie Saving Private Ryan. And, you know, here's a paratrooper. He's in Europe, he's lost. He had three brothers. Well, my uncle had three brothers also serving in World War II. And I said, well, look at all those coincidences. And then I said, you know what? We have search engines now. I wonder what I could find. And so it wasn't like a passion to find him. It was just a desire to use what I had at my fingertips to try and learn more. So I just started surfing around in my spare time. And I have to tell you what happened was pure luck. It wasn't like I knew what I was doing. I wasn't a researcher for work, you know, like that. Stumbled across the website. It was for the 504 Parachute Infantry Regiment, 82nd Airborne, where my uncle was. And about the third time I went to the website, I saw a, a link that said casualty list. Okay. Because my family didn't know what happened to him, where he died, what battle, he, they didn't know any of that. So I scrolled down the R's and there was Staff Sergeant David Rosencrantz missing in action in uh, Holland during Operation Market Garden, 28 September, 1944. And that his name was memorialized on the wall of the missing at the cemetery there. 
Oh, wow. well, now I had something to go on. I had a date and a place. So I emailed the webmaster and I said, do you have any email addresses of anybody that might have known my uncle? I mean, it's a bizarre question, right? And so he kindly sent me back. He said, here's 10 email addresses. He said, some are, some are veterans, some are family members, some are researchers. He says, I don't know who they are, but you can have them. And so I emailed all of them. And three weeks later, I get an email back from uh, a guy. And he says, Phil, how did you find me? I've been looking for a relative of your uncle's for five years. Oh, my. And he said, my father was one of the guys that served with him. He's still alive. And we, we know the name of another veteran who's still alive, who was an eyewitness to what happened to your uncle. Wow. And I mean, I was blown away. I mean, that was pure luck. And so I called this guy, Ted Finkbeiner was his name, Sergeant Finkbeiner, lived in Louisiana. And he said, oh, gee, I'm surprised nobody ever found out what happened to him. Well, we had no technology for that in 1944. And so he told me where he died, how he died, and why he was, why they didn't have his body, how, you know, they were, you know, retreating at the time, actually. And so... I thought that was pretty cool. And that answers your question in a way. But then I started asking my relatives if they had any information. So part of the story is my uncle David was the middle child of 11 children. And it's a big family. A lot of grief went around when he, you know, when they said he was dead and missing in action. And I started collecting artifacts. I had nothing, absolutely nothing, but I started collecting letters, some of his stuff that got sent home, not much. Uh, newspaper clippings, there were albums that had been made of newspaper clippings and stuff. So I collected stuff. Now I have boxes and boxes of things. But uh, so then I said, oh, I got a bunch of stuff. I'll make a website. So I, I made a website and then I got an, email from a Dutchman uh, and he said what's your phone number I have to call you <laughs> and so this uh, Dutchman his name is Ben Overhand so he's a major part of the book he we got on the phone he called me and he said I have been looking for your uncle's remains uh, since I was 15 years old so he'd already been looking for 15 years. So he's 30. And he told me where my uncle was killed, all the details, you know, everything he'd done to try and find his remains. He talked to me on the phone for three hours, international phone call. I still don't know how much that cost. <laughs> he tells me he still has that phone bill. But anyway, so that's how I got started. And then I went to a 504 reunion because of my research, I found veterans, other veterans who were still alive. In fact, one was writing a book. So he invited me to a reunion and a book signing. And then we started going to the Netherlands every five years 
for the big reunion. So my wife and I have been to the Netherlands uh, four times for that and, and other times as well on our own and met people. And we've been to all the places he was at, you know, where they dropped in the drop zone, um, where he fought, where he died. He was in some major battles, some famous battles. And, and he fought in Sicily and Italy before that. So I just kind of got into it. And then uh, got the, I got involved with the, the Defense POW MIA agency. You know, they have people working on this stuff, but they, they have such large numbers of, of cases they're working on that the ones where they don't seem to be anybody that cares kind of get off to the side. Right. When they find somebody interested, especially if you've been there, you have some facts. And so I attended some what they call family meetings that go around the country all year long, having meetings with families of POWs and MIAs. So they got a little more interested in things um, and they met with Ben Overhand and they, they did a lot. They, they actually got active. So that's what led to eventually success. There's, that's a long drawn out story. I'll leave that no, to the it's, it's it's an amazing string of events. Yes. And yeah. The way it happened was obviously exactly the way it was meant to happen. Yeah. You know, and I mean, what a, I, I just love that. Because um, you were talking about your uncle, you know, you, you, the family never spoke about it. And that generation I found even in my own family, it's not something you speak yeah. about, you know, it's just, it's a tragic thing and you don't speak about it. I had an Uncle Eddie that I never knew had existed. And my grandmother passed away um, in the late 90s. And my aunt still continued to live in the house. But then we had to move my aunt here to where I live due to health reasons. She's now elderly. So it came to my sister and I to clean out grandma's house that our family members had been living in for 105 years. That's a lot of history in that house from attic to basement. And in the attic, tucked back in the secret little room that we never even knew existed, was an old, dusty, beat-up blue box. And I pulled it out, and it was an American flag, yellowed with age from the 40s, because it didn't have all the stars on it that we have on it today. And I held it up, and I'm thinking, this is a funeral flag. Whose is it? So I asked my aunt and she said, oh, that was Uncle Eddie's. I said, how can we never heard of Uncle Eddie? And he was in World War II. How can we never heard of him? She said, well, he was severely injured. He, he did make it home, but then died within a year from his injuries and no one ever talked about it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I wanna know the story. I mean, what, where was Uncle Eddie? You know, what happened and how was he injured? So I understand how, you know, that sparked your interest when things started with you. Um, I've not taken the time to do this yet with my Uncle Eddie stuff. I may um, one of these times, but, you know, I'm in my early 50s. So that's how long it took for anyone to even acknowledge his flag. And I brought that flag home with me. And as a veteran myself, I understand the significance of that flag that draped his coffin and the significance of losing a veteran and what they what they and so many others have sacrificed decade after decade for our country. And I have nothing but respect for all of our veterans who, who served our country honorably. 
And so to hear your story, and this is just the beginning part of it, just to hear how you started your journey, I'm in awe because it's just uh, that you took the time to to look into it and find out what really happened and to find out the story. And in, in that process, you met other veterans and they sh I'm sure they shared their stories with you because that's history, unfortunately, that we're losing every day more and more. World War II veterans, there's not so many of them left yet. And uh, right. every single one of them is a history book because they all have a different story and a different perspective and what it was that they did in the war and who they met and how things happened. And, you know, I, I just wish that I had the time that I could just do that full time and go around the country and talk to all of them, you know, because it's just, it's fascinating. And I don't, I think that that their stories need to be shared. And I am so happy uh, that you did, you did and are able to share your uncle Dave's story. And you've got that published in a book and it's out there for the world to, uh, to read and to learn from. So I personally just want to thank you for putting all your effort and your heart into that. It's just, it's awesome what you've done. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. One of the uh, joys of it was, I didn't know my uncle, of course, but you know, everybody talks about what a wonderful person he was. And all of the people that he served with said the same thing. He was one of the best soldiers in the 82nd Airborne. Um, everybody loved him. He was the only sergeant that didn't use four-letter words. He cared for his men. Uh, and then as I started doing research, I found out, you know, he was expert marksman, highest scores on all the tests, best border squad in his regiment. And I collected 56 um, letters that he wrote from relatives. And, and then I ended up after reading, I was just going to put excerpts in the book from his letters. And I'm, I'm reading, so I said, well, I need to read all the letters. And I'm saying, these are wonderful. He, he was a lovely writer, very self-deprecating, um, really connected to his siblings. And so I ended up putting um, 49 of the letters in the book. And, and, I, and I annotate them so you you know, when you read a letter, you kind of understand the context of it, if you need to, who he's writing to or what they're talking about. And the, the, all my beta readers of the book said, oh, that's the best part of the book. And they, they said, we felt like we got to know Dave. He's my Uncle Dave. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and so that, that was great for me. I feel like I know my Uncle Dave, even though I never met him. The thing that I regret was well i'll leave that to the end but uh anyway it, I, I have i do have more. a question yeah. i have a question um okay. as you were sharing a few minutes ago about this young man young man from the netherlands that had contacted you a 30 year old uh -huh. what was a 30 year old in the netherlands doing searching for the remains of your uncle dave that is a good question so Ben <clears throat> grew up hearing his parents and his grandparents talk about how the Americans came and liberated them. Thousands of them died liberating the Netherlands. 8,000 are still in the, the cemetery in the Netherlands, not to mention all the ones that got shipped home. They came over and they sacrificed. And the parents and grandparents said, 
how come everybody's talking about finding all the MIAs in Vietnam when we still have MIAs here from World War II? And they were all upset. Well, Ben said, 15-year-old boy said, well, I'm going to go look for some of them. And so he did some research to find out where the MIAs were. He would he, he got himself a metal detector. He would get on the train and go from Rotterdam to Nijmegen and go to the farm where the battles were, the estate that he was interested in, where there are a bunch of MIAs. And he'd go on the weekends and he would look for what he could find. Well, he also researched, you know, and interviewed some veterans and found out their stories, the eyewitnesses, what happened. And uh, he started finding things. He found a one American MIA, not my uncle, and he found 12 German MIAs. Uh, the Germans, actually very few countries really go after their MIAs. They just write them off. Right. Our, country, our country's better with that. That's in the book. Anyway, so he was... Everybody told him, well, you know, if you could just find one of those guys that's missing, we sure wish it could be Sergeant Rosencrantz. So he focused on trying to find my uncle. So he had some theories and some ideas, and he never gave up. He never gave up. And uh, I got to meet him and become good friends with him and his family. And there was another, uh, there was another researcher in the background. Uh, that I met early on, and he started getting interested in this when he was 12 years old. And by the time he was 21, he was the leading expert on Operation Market Garden in the Netherlands. 21-year-old kid, and so he's still he's written six books. So he was active behind the scenes too. That's amazing. That, yeah. is, that and you know, I, I've been to the Netherlands. Um, I've, I've traveled over in Europe, and the one time I traveled there, I went to Reims, France. And that happened to be a very small village where my step-grandfather, who in my area where I live locally, he was the last surviving World War I veteran. Mm. He passed away in 1994 at the age, he was four days shy of his 104th birthday. Wow. And I always found his story fascinating because he was very old when I was around him. I mean, you know, he was very old and you don't often get to meet or never really meet a World War I veteran. And he was from literally or initially from um, Sicily. And so he spoke nothing but Italian, but had lived in America for, you know, decades and decades. But I, so I could never actually chat with him because I didn't know any Italian and he didn't know any English. And after he passed away as a veteran myself, and as I got older, I thought, you know, I, I need to, I need to look into his story a little bit. And I did. And he was in Reims, France, this tiny little village. So my husband at the time and I traveled there because I wanted to pay honor to him um, and for his service and sacrifice. And so we went to this little village in France and met the mayor there. 
and as soon as we got there and I tried to explain in my English to their French my husband was German so we had three languages trying to understand each other and we finally were able to find a woman in a little restaurant that spoke English so she she became our translator and she was explaining to the mayor this is the granddaughter she is here to honor her grandfather and as soon as they heard that she's here to honor her grandfather the mayor was just you know kissing on the cheek three times and going you know talking really really fast and I didn't understand what they're saying but what he was doing was he cleared his schedule for the next couple of days completely cleared his schedule so he could show me around where the battles were they have little monuments right in the middle of a cornfield all over the place yes and my my grandfather he was literally a boy of company b and so the boys of company b they have this in this middle of this big cornfield there's this really nice monument it's not huge but it always has fr fresh flowers on it every day since they put it there and this is decades there's a bridge there that is now called i'm from uh, meadville in pennsylvania so there's a bridge there called Meadville they renamed it Meadville Bridge for the Meadville boys of Company B and they were there on Armistice Day and the mayor provided a bottle of wine to those boys way back when on the 11th day of the 11th month at the 11th hour gave them a bottle of wine to celebrate with and they said we're not going to open it we're going to keep it and they called themselves the last man's club okay and so as each comrade passed away as the years went by it was passed to another comrade that was still living and that bottle ended up coming to my grandfather who was the last man of the last man's club all oh, man. later later so when i was learning this story i was just amazed and that the mayor took his time out to show me around this little village into the church that still had big bullet holes and stuff in it, you know, and he took me to his office and they have one wall. It was all glassed in of all these pictures from World War One and World War Two, but right in the middle was an eight by 10 picture of my grandfather. They were honoring him as the last man of the last man's club from the boys of Company B who helped to liberate and keep feet. Oh my, what a story. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I just yeah. stood there in awe and I started crying. <laughs> and I'm yeah. going, this is my grandfather. I'm in France and you have a picture of him. And with our translator, he said, we honor him and they always will be honored. And it's not, and, and to get back to what I was originally saying, when you were saying how they, they, they took the time to go yeah. and look for the American MIAs and the, it seems that other countries that we help liberate, they honor them in such a different way. But it seems to me more often. Yes, definitely. And in a, in a more, in a bigger way. I'm not saying we don't honor our veterans. Believe me, I, you know, I'm not saying that at all. As a veteran myself and an advocate for veterans, I'm all about helping and honoring and respecting and all of that. But to go to a foreign country and meet people from the towns that are generations removed from the action that actually happened and they're still honoring 
your loved one, that's, that's a different level to me. That was amazing. Can I share one thing they do over there that is very, very rare? Yes, please share. Um, there's a famous battle. You can see it in a movie, A Bridge Too Far, where Robert Redford leads the guys. They go across the, the Rhine River or the Wall River in rowboats and they to capture the bridges from the other side and they're being shot at crossing the river you know um it's called the wall crossing well it's famous um and 48 uh paratroopers died in that battle just crossing the river getting the other side my uncle survived it he was one of the ones that made it through but in 2015 or so uh, they built another bridge across the Rhine River there, it's the Wall River, and they put it at that spot where the crossing was, and they gave it the name of the battle in Dutch called the Oversteek, the crossing. But here's the cool part. There were 48 paratroopers that perished in the battle. There's 48 sets of streetlights that go across the bridge. And every night um, they have what they call the sunset march and the lights turn on sequentially every 30, 13 seconds. And you can walk across the bridge silently as a memorial to the men that fought in that battle. And every night there's at least one person that does that march ever since then. So we've participated in two of those marches um, when we've been there. And so now actually what happens as a kind of a little footnote on that is there are people that come there and they do the sunset march to memorialize their veteran or their soldiers from some other battle. It just has become a, a way of doing a memorial. And it, it's very poignant and uh, uh, moving. And the final thing I wanted to say was uh, the Dutch teach their children in school about World War II and what the happened, the Americans, the battles. And they have a lot of other issues because they're right there next to Germany. So anyway, very informative. I love, I love that you share that story about the Sunset March. That's amazing. I didn't know about yeah. that. That's it, well, about brought me to tears. I was almost crying as you were describing it. <laughs> um, just amazing stuff there. Amazing stuff. So you got you, you, you did all your research and, and you got your stuff put together. How did you always think that you were going to be publishing as the book when you were researching or how did that come about that you're thinking, you know what, I got to get this in a book and I want to get it out into the world. About halfway through about 10 years into my journey, so to speak, I said, you know what, there's a book in here. And other people said, Oh, you got to write a book. And, and so I said, well, someday when they, when they finally bring my uncle's remains home, and I can see his name on a grave marker at Riverside National Cemetery, then I'll, I'll have closure for me, and I'll write a book. 